Well, it's fall, isn't it? Certainly uh, the Colts are playing today and I hope they win. And you can see that a lot of the leaves have already come down. I really like looking out this window. I've got a couple of trees that I always kind of focus on and it's fun to see them during different seasons of the year. Where I grew up, often what would happen is different clusters of men, and I grew up in southwestern Michigan, would go up north, they would say. And I don't know, sometimes up north wasn't very far north, but it was, seemed like a long ways to them. And they would go deer hunting. And that kind of reminds me of a story that I heard about three friends who look forward each year to doing that very thing, to make that trek to go deer hunting. There was a lawyer, a doctor, and a preacher. You didn't expect to hear a preacher, but that, that's, that's where it was, yeah, yeah. And uh, it's the first day of deer hunting, and uh, they're out there, and they see the biggest buck that they have ever seen. As they look at its rack, they're mesmerized. They can't, uh, they can't believe the numbers of points on it. And, and, and so quickly, each of them brings up their rifle and shoots at the virtually the same time. And the, 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 big, bir the big bird, yeah, the big uh, animal, uh, the big buck, that's what I wanted to say, not big bird, big birds, you know, that's Sesame Street. But uh, the big buck goes down. And, uh, and so now they've got a problem as they rush up to it and they look at it. They're saying to one another, well, I shot it. The other, n n you didn't shoot it, I shot it. And so an argument breaks out between these good friends over who really brought down this big animal. And, and it was a, uh, an important deal because you got to know that uh, the stories would become embellished through the years and it would become bigger and bigger. And so the person who brought down this trophy buck uh, would be hailed for a long time. And so these great friends... Uh, were in a quandary. Just about that time, a game officer came along and happened to, he happened to know them, and so he uh, uh, decided that he would go look for himself as he saw what they were arguing over. The, the doctor said, uh, you know, we got a problem here. Uh, we don't know who shot it. And so he looked for a little bit at the, the, and, and saw where the, the animal had been shot, and he says, comes back and he says, uh, this is easy. The, pre the, the preacher shot the buck. And they all wondered uh, how he came to that conclusion so quickly. And the officer responded, well, that's easy. The bullet went in one ear and out the other. <laughs> it had to be the preacher. I was hoping that you wouldn't understand that. <laughs> but you did, and it's okay. Today, in this final sermon on the subject of worship, worshiping our audience of one, we are going to be looking together at the proclamation of the word. We've looked at uh, baptism, we looked at communion, we looked at singing, we looked at music, we looked at all the elements of the service. And today we're going to be looking at the longest one, the one that we're in now. While the preached word is the longest part of the service, it's only important as it fits into the texture of the whole. It's supposed to be part of the whole. It's meant to be a part of the whole as we focus our attention and our gratitude on God and not on the person who delivered the sermon. Uh, too often, I'm afraid, through the centuries, we've raised up the preacher and sometimes forgot the message. Believing this to be true, through the years as a pastor, I've really desired to develop preaching teams. While I've been responsible principally for proclaiming the word, I've shared it with other pastors on the staff. We plan sermon series together, and I would only preach maybe about 60% of the time and allowed the word to be delivered through different voices. 
Now at Southport, where I was a pastor for 13 and a half years, we had three other pastors. And one of them was the missions pastor. And any time we talked about any subject, he had the lens of looking at it globally, what was going on in the rest of the world. We had another pastor who was the pastor of pastor, pastoral care and also spiritual formation. And she always looked through the lens of psychology and interpersonal relationships. Her husband was a, a clinical psychologist. And then the last person was a guy who had a PhD in Old Testament. And he always looked through the lens of as a scholar, and he was a gifted teacher who helped us to understand the word in new ways. It was so much fun watching them grow and develop as they proclaimed the word through their individual God-given styles and personalities. I once had an old-timer of the church come up to me and say, you know, when you first started doing that, I don't know that I liked it very well. I've heard that a lot of times about a lot of issues. But he said, I don't know that I liked it very well. But he said, you know, the more that I've heard those four voices over and over, I realize that I like uh, hearing different voices, not just the same old voice speaking to me all the time. And then he said, and you know, I, I have a preference. I didn't ask who it was. I have a preference, but you know, it doesn't matter anymore. What matters is that the word is being proclaimed. I pray that the same thing might be true for us. It's never about the messenger delivering the message. It's always about the message itself. Therefore, we don't publicize ahead of time who's going to be preaching on particular Sundays. Our audience of one whom we've come here to worship is our central focus and not the one who's doing the major part of the speaking. With all that said, instead of just talking about preaching the word, let me begin. Our scripture passage for this morning comes to us from the last of Paul's letters or epistles, and it's one of those prison epistles when he's in prison. He's in prison in Rome, and it's the second time he's been in prison in Rome. The first time he was under house arrest, and the conditions really weren't too bad, but this time he's under arrest in, in a place that's cold and damp and dirty and not a pleasant place. And as he comes to speak, as he writes rather to to Timothy, uh, he's one who's, uh, Paul's one who's served for 30 years, and he's now in a place uh, where uh, the emperor at the time, Nero, who is kind of deranged and is trying to kill Christians off as fast as possible, uh, has put Paul's life in grave jeopardy. Uh, as, in fact, as Paul dictates this last letter, probably to Luke, the doctor, he knows that in a very few short days, he may get the axe, literally, for he will be beheaded. But as he writes, there's a sense of passion. There's a sense of emotion because he's writing to his beloved protege, Timothy, whom he had led to Jesus in the backwater town of Lystra. Then Paul mentored that bright young lad as he traveled with him, going from town to town on his missionary journeys. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 5, Paul has come to the end of the letter and is speaking what he considers to be the most important words to this young pastor of the significant church in Ephesus. Like all pastors, Timothy has more on his plate than he can possibly do. So Paul's trying to help him focus upon what is most important. 
His spiritual father and mentor, Paul, is telling him what should be his top priority. Let's read Timothy's mail today as I read from 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. I would encourage you, if you have Bibles, to follow along and keep them open since we're going to be referring to it often. And if not, I encourage you to read on the screen as, uh, as I read. Listen for the word of the Lord. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing and his kingdom, I give you this charge. Preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. For the time will come when men will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. But you keep your head in all situations, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, discharge all the duties of your ministry. May God add his blessing, understanding, and most particularly his application upon this the reading of God's word. Paul begins with a charge to Timothy to preach the word. Now it's important to note that that word for charge here, when he says I charge you, is a legal term in the Greek when which it was written. It's a legal term which has the idea you are a person under oath. So it should be that important. It should be that significant. It's dripping with feeling and passion. And the reason for this high level of emotion in this charge is also that it's in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will ultimately be the judge between the living and the dead. So there's, there's a real seriousness about this, and there's a sense of urgency, realizing that Jesus could appear at any time or return, come back again. Likewise, it's given great importance because it's a charge given on behalf of the one who is setting up a kingdom, the one who is the king of kings. You see why Paul is ramping up the passion as he writes these final words with this, to his much-loved protege? The charge begins with the highest priority for Timothy in his whole ministry, preach the word. The Greek word for preach here comes from the root kerygma. It is uh, the proclamation that takes place. And in the marketplace in those days, they didn't have uh, PA systems that, uh, like we have here. And so uh, there would be a herald who would go into the marketplace and he would shout out the news, that uh, the, whatever the announcement that the king had. And so he was there speaking, announcing the words of the king, of the one who was in authority. So it wasn't on his own authority that he spoke. It was on the basis of the one that he represented. And there's a deep sense of urgency here when the herald understands whose message he is delivering. The word for preaching here is the same one that's used for Jesus when after his wilderness of temptations, we find that Jesus is, is the first thing he does in his ministry is preach the word. And his word is the same as John the Baptist, whom he's just founded, is incarcerated, and it is repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. What is to be the central focus of that proclamation? 
It's to be the Word. Did you notice here that the Word is capitalized? There's a sense in which Paul is talking about the Word of God, the God-breathed and authoritative Scripture, which he just wrote about in the chapter just preceding, in verses 16 and 17 at the end. As we worship our audience of one, the Scriptures, the Bible, must be the source of all preaching. If preaching is nothing more than my word, if it's nothing more than my ideas, if it's nothing more than my stories, then I'm leading you astray. And it's empty, and frankly, my word or the word of any other preacher can never be enough to meet your deepest needs. It can never be enough to what to do what Paul says earlier in those last verses, to rebuke, correct, and train in righteousness. My word can never be enough to equip men and women of God for the doing of every good work. Oh, dear friends, we desperately need the word of the creator sustainer, which will always stand the test of time. In the Old Testament, the prophets were to proclaim the word. They were to be heralds or spokesmen spokesmen for God as they spoke the word to the people of Israel. So it must be for today's preachers as we proclaim God's word to our world. Well, it might not have been exactly what Paul was thinking about when he wrote to Timothy. John also speaks of Jesus in his prologue to his gospel as being God's supreme communication, the word to the world. As Christ followers, It is important that when we preach, people are given Jesus. Less of me, less of the preacher, and more of Jesus. The Christian vocalist, Fernando Ortega, captures this idea with the popular song, Just Give Me Jesus. Billy Graham's daughter, Ann Graham Lotz, will be presenting a conference for women downtown at the convention center in uh, April, and it's entitled, Just Give Me Jesus. Every time we worship our audience of one, we must get a bit of Jesus. People must come in contact with Jesus. Again, with great urgency, Paul charges Timothy to be prepared in season and out of season. In other words, Timothy, you must always be alert to buy up every possible opportunity which is placed before you. Timothy must be ready and willing to proclaim the word in all times and all seasons. I really like the words and the image of of Philip Towner as he writes about this idea of constant readiness. Get this image now. He says, it brings to mind the doctor on call at the emergency room or an obstetrician whose schedule must be determined by need, where readiness and availability might be the difference between life and death. It is available Christians who will be able to seize the moment and win people for Christ or come to the aid of struggling brothers and sisters. After that, we find that Paul gives three tasks which he must do if Timothy is going to be faithful in preaching in all times and seasons. He says, first, he must correct. Another word used here is convict or point out a person's sin or wrongdoing. We must love people enough to tell them what we believe to be the truth, 
to be honest with them about what is right and wrong, always using the Bible as our ultimate guide. Closely aligned to correct and maybe going a little bit further is the word rebuke. It's like the prophet Nathan when he's with his dear friend King David and he proclaims, you are the man, when he speaks to him about his sin with Bathsheba, which he's been trying to cover up. There was a a brilliant man named Alcibiades who was the darling of Athens. And he once said to the great philosopher Socrates, after Socrates had corrected and had rebuked him, Socrates, I hate you because every time I meet you, you make me see what I am. I must admit that we preachers don't like to correct We don't like to rebuke anymore. We're afraid that people will think we're trying to be above them. We're we're afraid that people will think we're trying to be holier than thou. And we know that none of us are perfect. For fear of being us misunderstood or being rejected, we water down at best or fail altogether to correct and rebuke others. Think what would happen if parents never corrected their children. Think what would happen if they never spoke words of truth to them in deepest love. Paul next states that Timothy must encourage the people to whom he proclaims the word. The Greek word here has the same word as as paraclete here, which Jesus uses in the gospel when he speaks about the Holy Spirit who's going to come. He's going to be one that's going to be alongside of them to bring them comfort, to bring them hope, to bring them courage, to bring them direction. It's so important as we think about that, that in proclaiming the word, when the preacher is correcting and and rebuking, he's also encouraging. Encouraging, which brings out a very practical response. This is what it says. Now let us do it. Let's not just talk about it. May it not just be theory, but may it be something that we live out in our lives. Another writer puts it this way. No rebuke or conviction should ever be such that it drives a man to despair and takes the heart and hope out of him. Not only must men be rebuked, but they also must be encouraged. Encouragement is at least as much a Christian duty as rebuke. Paul goes on to say in verse, uh, goes on to say that these three tasks should be wrapped up in patience and careful instruction. It's crucial that the words of the message and not the impatience or the self-righteousness of the speaker are what is conveyed. Do you feel encouraged when you leave this place to make changes in your life when the word is proclaimed with patience and careful instruction as you are corrected, rebuked, and or encouraged? I wholeheartedly believe that God wants to accomplish this week after week as we share worship services together, focusing our attention on our audience of one. Paul next presents a warning to Timothy. Listen again to Paul's passionate words of verses three and four. For the time will come when men will will not put up with with sound doctrine, instead to suit their own desires, They will gather around them a great number of teachers 
to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears from the truth and turn aside to myths. The problem that Timothy faced in his contemporary culture is much like maybe we face today. There would be those, instead of correcting, rebuking, and encouraging, would speak words that people wanted to hear. In Timothy's day, those people were called sophists. And for financial gain, they would go from place to place, speaking flattering words so that they would tickle people's ears and be paid for them. William Barclay, Scottish biblical scholar, described the sophists like this. Men in the days of Timothy were beset by false teachers hawking round a sham knowledge. Their deliberate policy was to find arguments and teaching whereby a man could justify for himself what he wanted to do. Does that sound familiar? Would Paul speak those same words of warning to any preacher in our day and age? In an obvious way, we, our mind, if, if you're thinking and you're still tracking with me, our minds go to those TV preachers. You know, they're further away and we can kind of uh, think about them and how many times they plead for people's money, promising them prosperity and material blessings if they heed God's call. I'll never forget sitting in the living room of uh, my mother and stepfather's mobile home in Michigan. And my mother says, oh, let's stop our conversation. My favorite TV program is on. It was Jim and Tammy Faye Baker. And it was shortly after they had been discredited for fraud and an opulent lifestyle that they had kind of hidden. And you know, they were, they were, they were talking about how abused they had been. And my mom looked over at me and she said, you know, we still send them money every month because we feel sorry for them. Their ears were being tickled, as it were, to gain something. When I was a pastor in St. Louis, the church that I served was a, a significant church that, uh, uh, that had a, a place in the presbytery. And we were very, very involved in the life of the presbytery. And I personally was involved. And though there was an issue that came before the General Assembly, that was problematic. And that issue uh, was one that concerned me because I believe the Bible and the church had clearly called that issue, uh, had made a statement about that issue and called it a sin. When I got up to speak to the amendments at a presbytery meeting in an orchestrated plan, as I got up, two seminary professors got up on either side of me. The method of discussion was pro-con, pro-con. And as I got up, I spoke on, I said, I don't have a corner on the truth. Let me start there. I can only speak from what I understand to be true. And it was on the basis of the biblical authority that I urged people to vote against the overtures, believing that the Bible had spoken as had the church spoken about those issues through the years. In a closing argument, I said that if I have to choose between the Bible and the denomination, it would always be the Bible. Now, the professor on either side of me said, first, uh, that the Bible really didn't say what the church through the centuries and I believed it to say. Next, they tried to discredit me by saying that we are much more informed today and must move past those ancient ideas of the past. All three of the overtures passed and were sent to the General Assembly. It seems to me like Timothy's day and age, our contemporary culture has acquiesced to the desires of the people and has left behind the standards of morality, I believe, found in the scriptures. 
We have itching ears and don't want to hear words that would make us feel guilt or shame. As I've said before on a couple of occasions, I, a couple of years ago, heard the academic dean of uh, Princeton Seminary say that he'd done a sabbatical and for a year had studied the subject and he believed that our culture today is more like that first century than any other culture since that time. But dear friends, lest we sit comfortably pointing our fingers at the culture out there, we are, very, we are every bit as much guilty and culpable where we sit. While we, might not, while we might stand against alternative lifestyles and other kinds of sins of those people out there, like the Israelites in the book of Judges, we have done what is right in our own eyes every bit as much. And while self-righteously pointing our fingers at them out there. If we're going to be obedient to God, if we're going to see a, a spiritual resurgence in the United States, it must begin with me. It must begin with you repenting and turning around and moving back to God. The words of the old Negro spiritual speak loudly to me. It's not my brother, my sister, it's not my culture, but it's me, O oh Lord, standing in the need of prayer. Finally, in verse 5, Paul completes his charge to his beloved protege by saying, but you, that is you in contrast to the sophist and any others who would seek gain by speaking to the itching ears of the people of your culture, keep your head in all situations. And then he goes a step further and he says, endure hardships. Preaching the word by correcting, rebuking, encouraging may be costly. People don't want to hear words which will cause them to feel shame and guilt. Paul, the writer, is a great example of enduring hardships as he writes from his prison cell there in Rome. He says, do the work of an evangelist. Keep preaching the word, giving people the good news of Jesus so that they might find forgiveness, joy, peace, and hope in a personal relationship with God. And so they might be agents of his kingdom, bringing justice and hope to the world around them. Discharge all the duties of your ministry. In the midst of difficult times, Timothy, don't retreat. Don't pull into a shell of self-protection. When he soon would find out that Paul had been executed, Timothy must continue to preach, teach, and heal like Jesus had done. Oh, my dear friends, as we conclude this series of sermons and this service worshiping this audience of one, I pray that you and I would hear Paul's final charge as if it were spoken to each one of us. May every part of our worship, no matter what, whether it's the prayers, the music, the challenge, the Lord's Supper, the baptisms, the word proclaimed, may it cause us to keep our heads straight, often in contrast to the world around us. May it cause us to endure hardships in a world and culture which is increasingly more secular and less godly. May it cause us to do the work of an evangelist, making disciples and releasing disciples into our world following the example of Jesus. May we discharge the duties of our ministries, reaching out and practically caring for people in every way possible with every opportunity 
that is placed before us. If we keep our eyes on this audience of one, I believe that God will use ZPC to make a significant difference in the world where we live in the exciting days that lie ahead. If you have particular concerns or issues that maybe you brought with you this morning, and or if God has somehow moved you and, and you're having difficulty understanding what's been said or, or brought something up that you didn't even that I didn't have anything to do with, and you would like to pray with someone afterwards, there will be people over at the cross and the alcove over to my right, and they would consider it a privilege to spend time listening and then also spend time praying with you if you wish that. Let's pray. God, I thank you so much for the privilege of being here as your family of faith. And I thank you for each person here. I thank you for your indelible image, which is imprinted on each one of us. Now I pray that as we leave this place, as we scatter out into the world, that you would help us to be faithful to you this week. May people know that we are your disciples because we love one another, but because we also reach out and love to them. And God, I pray that you would help us to be difference makers this week in the place where we work, the place where we go to school, and the, with the friends that we spend time with in all that we do. It's in the name of Jesus that I pray. Amen.